Good morning, Connection Point Church. I am excited to uh, be with y'all again online. It's good to see all of y'all. I see Daniel Montgomery on here. I see Michaela Moore. I see Britt Benson and Lynn. All of y'all on here. I'm so excited that you have joined us this morning. Roxana Zapata in Peru. Hola. Very glad that y'all are on here today. Now, Today is going to be the third sermon in our series, Training Days, and we've been highlighting one day and just seeing what the Word of God says about it, and the text has been bringing us these days. They're not, they're not by my choice, and today we've got a hot one. We've got a hot one today. In fact, it's hot, okay? Today we are going to be talking about Election Day, and so I'm going to start off with a verse that is in line today, that just the verse they're giving us that Peter gave to us when he wrote this book. Chapter 13, or chapter 2, verse 13, it's going to be on the screen here. It says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, be it to the emperor supreme, oh my goodness, or to the governors who sent him to punish those who are evil and to praise those who do good. So obviously it's a pretty easy message today. We are supposed to honor the emperor supreme and our governors, and since they're both our governors and our emperor, our governors and our president, our Republicans, uh, Jesus is a Republican. We can close the book and go home, right, Matt? Right. Everybody agrees here. No, I'm just kidding. Now, obviously, that's not what we want to do with this text, but I do want to prove the point that many of us use the Bible instead of listening to the Bible. Instead of letting it speak to us, many of us are using it as a weapon or using it by picking a verse here or there. And so today I want to avoid that. And so I've gone a little above and beyond for you today um, to make sure that we understand this verse correctly. We need to understand it in context and we need to understand this verse in the thread of the whole Bible. There is a politic, there is a theology of politics that runs through the Bible. And so here's what we're going to do to get us all on the same page. First of all, we are going to have a Q&A at the end of this message, which after this sermon, I'm going to go over, I'm going to sit down with my wife, and any questions that you ask um, during this message, I'm going to try my best to answer or give you some thoughts on it from the biblical perspective. Now, I've already had a few that were from this week, but if you have any and you're bold enough to do it, we're going to answer those. But I want you to remember that we're a little ahead here. We're kind of in the future, about two minutes or so. And so you need to ask your questions as they come up. But if you ask them at the very end of the message, I might not get to them. So I want you to ask any questions you have on politics as we go through this verse. I also want to encourage you to go at some point. If you have any questions about this message, I've put all my notes, um, extensive notes, more than I usually do, on connectionpoint.life if you go to the notes page in the sermon card. Also, as you meet with your Zoom groups, as your connect groups after this in your Zoom meetings, I want to encourage you to make sure you're pointing towards the text. Anytime we talk, talk about um, politics, we all have different perspectives, so we want to be courteous. And we also want to let the Bible speak to us, even in our group. So, having said that, we're going to go ahead and begin laying a groundwork of a theology of politics. We're going to talk politics, and we need to start off by defining that word, politics. Now, politics... Is a, is a Greek word, and it simply means city. It comes from the word, Greek word city. Polis is, is city. And so when we're talking politics, what we're talking about is how people get along in cities. How do people get along together? How do people live together in 
peace. That's all politics really means is how do we get along. Now, in the Bible, we need to understand that politics comes from God, that he has given us authority. His authority has been given to us to rule and subdue the earth, not just the natural things, but also each other, to rule and govern each other. And so politics and governments are established by God. Now, the first government that we see in the Bible goes bad pretty quick. And the government of Egypt, okay, the pharaoh of Egypt, he's the the leader of Egypt, and he basically has been given his authority by God, as every government is, but we see very quickly that what happens to Egypt happens to almost every government. In fact, I would argue probably every government. Verse um, verse 2 in chapter 5 of Exodus is probably a good example of what happens to all governments. It says this, this is Pharaoh questioning back to Moses. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so very early we see in the Bible that even though God has established governments to rule men, that those governments begin to become inwardly focused, selfishly focused, and they turn on God and they rebel against him. And this thread that begins to, to weave throughout the Bible is God's kingdom that, he, that has ruled from eternity past to eternity future. God's kingdom is going to be in tension, in tension, did I say that right? Tension with the kingdoms of men, okay? And so we'll see this throughout. And, and, and God always uses the kingdoms of men to, to kind of chastise or to uh, correct other, gov- other governments that turn away. And so he's using uh, um, imperfect governments. And here's the big idea for today when we see this, okay? The big idea for today is that a perfect God uses imperfect institutions. A perfect God uses imperfect institutions. And we're going to see this thread throughout the Bible, that a perfect God who is reigning in the kingdom of God is going to use these imperfect kingdoms of men. And they are imperfect. So the question we're going to start off with before we even get into the text is this. How do we live for God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of men? How do we live for God in Babylon would be another way to say it. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this term Babylon becomes to be not just a place, but an archetype. It becomes kind of the picture of living in the kingdom of men when you are trying to live for the kingdom of God. Now, the, the archetype comes from Babylon, which when the Babylonians come in and they take the remaining uh, Israelites, the ones in the southern kingdom, they, they march them off to Babylon, and you find guys like Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You find them in the, being governed by the kingdom of Babylon, but they're living for the kingdom of God. They understand that God is their ultimate authority, but they've got to figure out how do we live in the kingdom of men. Now, here's the answer to this entire puzzle piece. Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the political leader of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. And you've got to understand this, that when Jesus is introduced to us in the book of Matthew, Jesus is introduced as a political leader leader. He is. He is a political leader. In fact, the the language that is given for Jesus is the word Messiah. 
And that word Messiah means anointed king. And so as Jesus comes into this world, he is announcing himself as the real, the true king. He is the king of this world and the kingdom of God. He is the reigning king. And when he gives sermons, we call them sermons, and we think of them in a religious, religious um, excuse me, a little, we think of them in a religious context, all of Jesus' sermons. But the political leaders at the time thought of his sermons as stump speeches, as, as political speeches, and they were subversive because the, the reigning political parties actually had a lot of different ideas, and Jesus subverts the kingdom of men by the kingdom of God. And so his stump speeches would say things like this, love your enemies, not conquer your enemies, not, not subdue your enemies, love your enemies. It would say th- he would say things like, you should love the least of these. You should love those who can't serve you back. You should serve those that can't serve you back. You shouldn't just serve your constituents and the people that can do something for you. You should actually serve those that cannot help you out. And as he lays this groundwork that instead of trying to change the world through just putting in a godly king, he's already king. And so what we do as Christians, if we follow the kingdom agenda, is we start from the bottom up. We love the least of these. We love those that are far from God, and we introduce them to him so that they love, and eventually the whole world will be transformed. So understand this. Grassroots movement comes when Jesus starts beginning to proclaim himself as the Messiah, the anointed king. And Rome takes notice. The Jews that are in power take notice. And I want to make this clear. Jesus is executed as a political enemy. In fact, the Romans do something very interesting when they crucify him. Right before they crucify him, they put a crown of thorns on him. And then they put a scarlet or purple robe on him. And they give him this little twig. It says a reed. And they make him hold that. And they make him stand there. And they start mocking him. Hey, there's the king. There's the king of the Jews. There's the king. In other words, they're not calling him, hey, there's the silly preacher. They're saying, there's the political leader. There's the silly ruler of this kingdom. And Jesus does something fascinating. He remains silent. And in fact, even when he gets up on the cross, he remains silent. And most of his political enemies think of his silence as weakness. They don't see it as a political, they just think he is down and beaten. But on the cross, he begins to live out his, or he continues to live out his political agenda. He's silent. He doesn't start yelling back, talking trash to his accusers, even though earlier in the text it tells us that he could have called down angels from heaven to free himself and to subdue his enemies. But he said he wants the scriptures to be fulfilled. And so what he does is on the cross, he fulfills this by saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't, do not know what they do. So the, the political platform of Jesus, he stays true to it, even to the end, that I'm going to forgive my enemies. I'm not going to, to react violently to them. Well, of course, he dies on that cross. And three days later, he rises from the grave. And all of a sudden, the political party, which is the church, understand that the party of God is not Republican or Democrat. It is the church. That is the political party of Jesus. And the church rallies around him because he has proven himself as the risen king. He's proven himself powerful to forgive your sins and to, and to connect you with this heavenly kingdom. And so he says something interesting. He says a political statement. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. 
And so I want to under, you to understand that the solution to all politics is Jesus through the concept or through the story of the Bible. Jesus is the fulfillment, no matter what the earthly kingdom is, whether it is a democracy or a communist or socialist, whatever it is, Jesus is the true king. And so when we live in Babylon, when we live in, a, in the earthly kingdom, but live for the kingdom of God, we subvert it the way Jesus subverted it. In other words, we subvert it. Uh, Jesus, he had to pay taxes, and he would say, pay taxes to Rome, pay taxes to, to the government. But he said, when you see the poor person, don't just assume, oh, that's not my problem, I paid my taxes. As a, kingdom, as a member of the kingdom of God, if you're a part of that political party, then you're going to go serve that person. You don't wait for the government or somebody else. You take it upon yourself to serve the least of these. When you see an injustice, you don't say, you know what, the government needs to take care of this. You start off saying, how can I serve? How can I go help those people who are hurting? And I think we've gotten this wrong in a lot of ways. I think the religious right uh, has gotten this wrong. I think the moral majority in the 80s was, was, uh, it was a, an it was a wrong concept. It was, it was missing the point of the political party of God is the church. The progressive left misses this too. Anytime we begin to point to a political party on earth and saying that's, that's God's party, it is a mistake because here's why. Every time you vote, whether you vote Republican or Independent or Democrat, you are voting your interest. You are voting for what you think is best for you. And you may think that if it's best for me, ultimately it'll be best for the, the country as well. But understand, your mindset begins when you think of how you're going to vote. And this isn't the, a wrong way to vote. But you need to at least understand, when I am choosing a political party on earth, I'm voting my, my, my interest first. And the kingdom of God, Jesus, starts totally different. He says, we're going to look to the least of these. We're going to actually give up our lives if that's what it takes. We will give up our lives for others. And so we are not going to look to our interests. If Jesus ran for president, he would not win because he would ask his party to, hey, we need to just start serving the Democrats and Republicans. We need to just help them. We need to make sure we're ministering well to them. We're not going to call them evil. We're not going to speak out uh, against them. We're going to love them. We're going to love our enemies. So understand that there is a big divide between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, the rulers of men. And so when we get entangled too much into politics, we need to understand that we can lose focus of that. So there's two ways I want to show you real quick before we get into the text. It's almost like you're getting two sermons today, bonus sermons today. But we need to have this thread. You need to understand Jesus' part in, in politics. Okay, the first thing I want you to see is that the kingdom of God subverts the kingdom of men by proclaiming the real king. One of the things you need to understand is part of the job of a Christ follower is we got to proclaim the real king. We've got to keep our, our leader in focus, and that is Jesus. It is not a man on this earth. It is Jesus. Now, the early church did this, and I want to give you a little thought experience, this experiment. In November, half of our country is going to be excited, and half of our country is going to be frustrated, is going to be angry. And half of the country, no matter if it's Trump or Biden or whoever, Kanye, not really, whoever it is, is going to say, hey, good news, my guy won. Good news, my guy won. They're going to proclaim good news. And understand that the way that the church, the political party of Jesus, the way that it subverted Rome and it subverted its governments is it would proclaim the true church. 
You know, over a half a dozen times in the book of Acts in the early church, we see the, the early church proclaiming Jesus as king, and it is not viewed as a religious statement as much as it is a political statement. I want to read Acts chapter 17, give you an example. Okay, the, the early church, Paul and them have been evangelizing, telling people about the true king Jesus, and I want you to see the reaction, okay? They couldn't find uh, the, the disciples or the apostles, so they found the people they were staying with, and this is what it says in verse uh, 6. It says, these men have turned the world upside down, and they now have come here also. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, King Jesus. Isn't that interesting that they saw this as a political statement? And the people, it says, heard, and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. One of the ways we subvert the kingdom is every time there's political tension or strife in politics in the United States or wherever you are, Peru, wherever you're listening to this, is instead of getting entangled too much in that politics, we start pointing to Jesus. When we proclaim Jesus as king, it's a subversive message. It's a way that we stand against Hey, this is what we really believe. There is a higher authority than those in power now. The second way that we subvert the kingdoms of men. The kingdom of God subverts the kingdoms of men by serving the real king. By serving the real king. Understand, uh, even in Rome, it was a bad situation for Christians. One of the things that, that was devalued in Rome was baby girls, specifically baby girls, but even children, that if they were lame or anything was wrong, you wanted a strong, they wanted a strong boy child. And so they would leave their children out if they were, were not going to keep them. And they would just leave them out and let them, the children be exposed either to the elements or to wild animals and just leave them to die so that they could have their firstborn be a, be a, um, a male. And so Christians at that time would get up and they would go collect these children. They would raise these children and adopt these children. And it was a way by serving Jesus, even though they weren't supposed to be doing this. And there are a lot of examples, whether it's um, with slavery and a lot of ways that Christians would subvert the kingdom. And when they didn't have the power or, or votes to, to change what they thought, they, they didn't worry about it. In fact, they never went to the top first. They never went to the political parties first. They always served Jesus first. And it's a powerful way that they live. And so sometimes this would actually get corrected in the Bible. And, and we know in 19 AD that Rome, the city of Rome, kicked out several of the Jews, probably about 2,000 of them. Uh, Emperor Tiberius kicks them out. And they're, it's a they're viewed as political enemies, the Jews were, or the early Christians were. And then we know in, in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius, he kicks out um, over 10,000 Jews out of the city of Rome, and he claims that they're not paying taxes and that they're creating political parties. So he claims that the early church is a political party, and he's not happy with the way that they're, 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 tax, uh, that they're paying taxes. And this is why when Peter writes for them, we're going to see, he's responding in part to this. Paul also responds in, in Romans 13 to this. Paul says to them, hey, you need to be paying your taxes. If the government says pay taxes, pay your taxes. In fact, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, verse 2. He meets them because they got kicked out of Rome during this expulsion. And so I want to show you all of that because the basic way you're going to see Paul and Peter in, in these letters that they're writing to Christians is you're going to basically see them say, hey, we're not trying to subvert the government of Rome by violence or overthrowing them or drawing the heat on our churches by, by just 
rebelling against everything. Instead, we're going to love those who, who are hard to love. We're going to love those who are far from God. And we're going to subvert the kingdom the way that Jesus subverted the kingdom. We are going to live for the kingdom of God. All of that to get you to a few verses that Peter writes today, to give you some context today. Because I want you to know, when Peter writes to a group of, of Christians who are uh, under bad leadership, understand that when you look at, at Tiberius, when you look at Claudius, when you look at Nero, the, none of our presidents can hold a candle to how evil those men's, tre- men, men's treated, <laughs> treated Christians. Now, when you think about what would Peter say to a, a church who's trying to live out holiness in the midst of a culture who is rebelling against it. That's what we're going to see. When you think about what would Peter say to, um, to our church now, to a government who may be um, overreaching sometimes, he speaks to that. Understand that Nero, who he is writing this during this time, he knows that there's a good chance he's going to be killed during this time. In fact, Jesus told Peter, you will be killed someday by the government. You will be martyred. And so he knows, he's living knowing Nero might be the guy that's going to do this to me. And yet, this is the advice he gives to his people about that same emperor. And we got to remember, our, our main idea here is that a perfect God uses imperfect institutions. A perfect God uses imperfect institutions. So, Let's go to verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. And I think that's a big key to this. For the Lord's sake. Be subject to every human institution. Now, the question is, what does he mean by every human institution? I would tell you, he means every institution of authority. He means the president. He means the governors. He means the police. But he also means your family. He means your father, be, uh, in a, let your father have authority over you. He means children, you need to, to um, be subject to your parents. Uh, the institution of marriage, whether you are married or not married, you need to keep the institution of marriage holy. And you're doing this not because uh, you think that police are always worthy or the, the um, governor is always worthy. You're doing it for the Lord's sake. The Lord's sake, as Christ followers, that's what we're always going to strive to do. He goes on and look what he says. He says, for, the will, uh, for this is the will of God. Now that's a strong statement. For this is the will of God. That by, not by yelling at people, not by violence and, and, and protesting everything that we think is wrong, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now that's a powerful statement, but you need to understand how Peter is viewing this. I know the government's bad, he says. In fact, he knows it's really bad, but God put him there. I know that there are some people who are going to speak against you and are going to just say foolish things. You know, one thing you need to know, or several things you need to know about foolish people and the way Christians react is we should, react. We should have a distinct kingdom of God response to the foolishness of the kingdom of men. Because foolish people are loud. <laughs> foolish people are the loudest people. That's just the way it is. Foolish people, by the way, are, if you want to know where to, the easiest way to find them is go to Twitter. Twitter is full of foolish people. But even on any social media, you'll see it. They post political stuff all the time. They're always thinking about the kingdom of men, and they're never pointing us to the kingdom of God. Christians, though, we have a different perspective. We pray for our enemies. That was the platform of Jesus. We pray for our enemies. We serve our enemies. 
So we're not yelling with foolish people. We're not debating all of our politics. Instead, we're pointing people to a higher cause. Now, foolish people are going to make every single thing. Hey, wearing a mask becomes a political statement, and this becomes... Listen, Peter would give us very clear advice. Wear a mask. We're all wearing masks in here, and I have my mask, my University of Texas mask, that, uh, that I'll be wearing when we're done here. Because the government, we're trying to honor the government. Christians should be the best citizens in the kingdom of men. We should drive the speed limit. We should not steal. We should do, if it is a, a law, we need to try to bring peace. And we need to have this mindset. We live in peace. We don't try to dismantle everything. We don't get, uh, get enraged at everything. We seek peace. You know, foolish people get louder and more foolish the more you engage them, the more you talk with them. But Christians, we empathize, we listen, we serve those even when we disagree. We love our enemies. Remember last week he, it said that there are going to be some that call you evildoers and you're going to serve them anyways. That is the kingdom agenda of Jesus. That's the platform he ran on. And we don't vote it in, we live it in. Now, I think that when we look at... Uh, at the kingdom agenda, Peter gives us a verse of 2020. I want you to go to verse 17. In verse 17, this to me would be 2020's verse for a Christ follower. If you want to know how do I navigate politics in 2020, honor everyone. That's the first piece of advice. We're all made in the image of God. Even the Democrats, even the Republicans, even Kanye, all of us, okay, are made in the image of God. Therefore, we're going to honor them. We're not going to devalue them simply because we disagree with them. We're going to understand God has given them value, and we are not going to speak against them. We're going to also uh, um, love the brotherhood, that is, love the church. We're going to lean into the church. The church is the number one place we should be living out our politics. Remember, though, not the politics of the earth. We're talking about the politics of the kingdom. That should be our primary our primary focus as Christians is how can I love my neighbor? How can I love those who, who are homeless? How can I love those who are in need right now? That's our political agenda. And, and that's where we start. I love this one, part of the verse. Most of us right now are fearful of everything in this world. And we're not fearful of the one person who can solve everything. God is in control of every government. He's in control of every disease, of every, he can heal, he can create, he can do anything with a word. The best thing Peter says we can do is fear God. Put all your respect and trust, fear God. But then he goes back and he reminds us, but remember, honor the emperor. This is the same emperor that's probably going to kill him. This is the same emperor that is expelling Christians and is being unfair to them. But listen, there's this idea in the kingdom of God that the kingdom of man is imperfect, and God is using even the imperfect emperors. And if you look at the history, I'm not going to go into it today, but God is always calling one kingdom, imperfect kingdom to replace another one. And, and when Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and takes the Israelites, God's people, out of Jerusalem, you know what the prophet Jeremiah said? He says, Nebuchadnezzar, a man who had never worshipped Yahweh in his life, the prophet Jeremiah says, that's God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar is being God's servant. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was an evil man and was not pursuing God, God was still in authority, and therefore Nebuchadnezzar was serving God whether he knew it or not. When we honor the emperor, we are honoring him with the knowledge that God is in control of all things and that we can wear our mask. We can do whatever uh, God has told us, not because 
Not, not because we, we, we have to be an authority, but because we want to honor him in the image of God, trusting that God is in control. Here's how I want to close out this message. Remember, this would probably be the last point. If you have any questions, uh, Q&A will begin in about three or four minutes. So I would love to answer if you've got any on here. Here's where I want to close. I just want to read how Peter ends this chapter and remind us as Christ followers why it's so important that we not get too caught up in trusting in the kingdoms of men. Because we have a Savior who did so much for us. This is what verse 21 says. For this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, or the King James, by his stripes, we have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have a Savior who has an agenda that is much bigger much more powerful, much better than any agenda, any political party here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that even when this world seems chaotic because of the politics and because of the situations that come whenever there is a government or authority given to men who are imperfect, Lord, I pray that we will always remember who is in charge, that the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that really, really matters. It's the kingdom that existed before every earthly kingdom. It's the only kingdom that will exist when all of these are gone. Lord, we don't want freedom from authority. We want to be totally under your authority. We want to only look to you. We want to make sure that we are focused on you. So give us strength this week to shift our politics towards you, to see our king as Jesus, to see our hope as Jesus. And Lord, when we serve, when we love people, we do so with the context of we have a higher king. Lord, give us the strength to bring unity to this world, unity within our churches. Lord, bring us together, no matter what we believe here on earth, bring us into a unified kingdom focused on Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I pray for everyone listening to this, that our hearts will be open to your word, that we can live focused on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Wow, thank you, Joel, for that message. That was great. I loved when you said, we don't vote it in, we live it in, and just like every day living out just Christ and, and what yeah. he taught us, and I just, I thought that was great, so. Thank you. We are going to move into our Q&A, so we did get some questions um, throughout the week um, that Joel is going to answer, and then we got a couple of questions on um, the live feed, so we are going to go over all of those. So first question. Thank you all very much for 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 asking your question. That's a bold move, so I appreciate that. Yeah, so first question, should we vote and participate in politics? All right, this is a good uh, question. Now, I said in the sermon that uh, it starts from the bottom up. In other words, uh, what I meant by that was we don't just look to vote in uh, a godly person, and then that fixes all the problem. It starts by us living it out. It's 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 our, We live it out. We don't vote it in. But when we look at the Bible, we do see politics is a big part of it, and we see Christians and godly people 
um, serving in, in government. So we see Joseph. God uses Joseph in a powerful way uh, in, the, in the book of Genesis, and he becomes uh, in, uh, high up in the government of Pharaoh. And so that's how in the government of Egypt, that's one of the ways he does this. He uses his platform as it grows to, um, to, to help people and to serve people. You see, when, ba- um, when the Babylonian exile happens and all the Israelites are, are brought into Babylon, you see Daniel. Daniel is, very, uh, is raised up very high into the government as well. The same for his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are um, they're thoughtful men. They are smart. And so they are in government. We see that. We also see that there are Pharisees and there are government leaders that convert to Christianity in the book of Acts and that there are men that are serving in politics, even in the book of Acts. Now, Paul, he even tries to convert the emperor. He tries to, uh, anytime he can get in front of somebody, he, he gives the kingdom agenda. He, he, he will try to convert them and tell his story about how Jesus is really king. So we do, you should vote. You should. And you should also, uh, if you want to be in politics and, and live out your beliefs, I think that is a great thing. We should definitely try to do those, but we shouldn't start there. We should start with living out our faith and understand that the, we can live the kingdom of God even if we're not in the kingdom of, of men, uh, even if we're not seeing it in the kingdom of men. That's good. So second question, when do we conscientiously, whew, it's a hard word, object? <laughs> okay, yeah, and that's a, I think that's a good question to be asked too is, um, because when, do, when is enough enough? When is it do you step in? And, and we do see this. We see, uh, for example, slavery in Rome was, ev- there were even more slaves in Rome than there were uh, percentage-wise in the United States in the, in the middle of the um, 18th century or 1800s. And so it was a big issue. And Christians at that time, they would buy slaves and then they would free the slaves immediately. And so they were just trying to, to undercut the slavery system even then. And there is a time in which Christians need to um, to stand up against evil tyranny or against evil governors, okay, or, or, or presidents. Now, I would say that it's always nonviolent, always. I think MLK, I think that's why we still talk about MLK and we don't talk about other movements is because he, he did a kingdom agenda. It's a powerful thing when you live out a kingdom agenda um, and you do it in nonviolence. And nonviolence is very, very disruptive. Understand it can be a powerful thing. So that's the first thing I would say is it's non, I would say it's definitely going to be nonviolent. But we see this in, in the Bible. We see Daniel, again, who was in, the, in Babylon. There's a decree that's put out for him that he needs to uh, worship and bow down to the king. And he will not do that. He will only bow down to God. And so what Daniel does is he opens his window, it says. And he goes, and he opens his window because he wants people to see. He's making a statement. And he bows down so that people can see. And then they come in and arrest him. When his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they are arrested, they will actually make a statement. Listen, our God can save us. And they were up for the death penalty. They were about to be executed. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, know this, we will not bow. And so, unfortunately, they, they highlight kind of what nonviolence, the, the limits of nonviolence is. We will not bow even if it means our life. That's how devoted we have to be to the kingdom agenda. Agenda is even when we put our necks out nonviolently, we have to be willing to say, hey, even if you abuse, we are not going to bow. Even if it costs us our life, we believe there's another kingdom that we're living for. And so there is definitely a time, and, and I think only through prayer, really, and uh, focused uh, counsel would I ever really encourage nonviolent, uh, make sure that it's, it's, it's a movement from God. 
Now, sometimes you see prophets speaking out too. So there's a, there's a time in which you've spent time in the word and you prophetically say, this is an evil. And if you have that prophetic voice, be very careful if you're going to say you have a prophetic voice and make sure that it aligns with God's word. Make sure that you have been in prayer and the Holy Spirit has guided you in this. But there are times where you speak out as well. But I would, what I would say is most of what I see people thinking or consciously objecting as Christians is more of just yelling um, foolishness because it hasn't spent time seeking and aligning to the word of God. It's not a prophetic, uh, a prophetic voice like we see Jonah. Jonah is a prophetic voice, and he doesn't want to be a prophetic voice because he knows when he calls people to repentance, it's going to help them, not hurt them. He's not, he's, and he doesn't, so he, he has to wrestle with this. Do I really want to call people, my enemies, to God? That's the prophetic voice would be calling people back to God, not telling them how evil they are. That was a lot, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, question number three, how should I vote? Should vote for Kanye. That's pretty clear. Next question. No, I'm just kidding. No, uh, I would say that be careful that the question sometimes is, is misguided. In other words, the number one question we should be asking is, how can I live out um, my faith in the midst of an unholy world? How can, I, how can I honor God in my current circumstances? And if you'll start there, how can I serve? How can I love? How can I live out my faith? Um, then I think prayerfully you can come to the... Uh, which one you should vote, but I would also say that there are reasons people vote both sides on any issue, and uh, your issue may be um, what God is telling you has put on your heart and has made your, your issue, and there may be other Christ followers who have spent just as much time in prayer, but another issue has drawn them to the other side, and unfortunately right now there's a dichotomy, um, and if you go for one side, you pretty much vote for one party, and so uh, it's a tricky thing, but I would say uh, seek time in the Lord. That's how you get there. Okay, and we did have a couple questions uh, on the live feed, and if you put it in late and we didn't catch it, I'm sorry, but um, there's just two questions. One came in from Seth O'Neill, and he said, if we are supposed to eventually refuse the mark of the beast, which is a mark required by world government, should we stand passively up until that point? Or should we resist every bit of authoritarianism up until that point? And then he points to Revelation. Right. And so I would say, first of all, with the book of Revelation, that there's a lot of unanswered questions. And so anyone who, um, who's basing all of our actions based on Revelation is a very cautious thing. If you look at the history of the last 400 years especially, a lot of people have thought they were in the last days. In other words... Tomorrow is going to be the end of the day, and it's caused them to uh, to misunderstand this mark of the beast. We don't. There's a lot of questions with Revelation. I'm not going to get into it. There's also a lot of different theological viewpoints of when the mark of the beast, all of that stuff. What I would say to you is this: first of all, take what Peter is saying to when we live in Babylon, and Peter actually uses the word Babylon for Rome, um, and I think they would also use the word Babylon for any major government, including the United States. Of how do we uh, live in Babylon? In, in, I would say that that honor the government again until it is uh, until it is something that is clearly against God. I would be cautious. Now, I mean, there are certain decrees that I think you should prayerfully say, "Is this best for my family? Am I going to do this?" And I and I understand those issues are going to come up with vaccines. Those are going to come up whenever there's uh, credit cards that have microchips. When they're in it, all of those things we've got to navigate. Okay. 
But I would say if our heart is, first and foremost, I'm going to serve the least of these. I'm going to stick to that platform of Jesus. I, I would say that's where, as Christ followers, we should be known for. And if we are going to conscientiously object, I would be careful that unless I had spoken to, I would speak to elders in the church and, and godly people, I would get godly wisdom before making any prophetic announcements that might uh, disagree. So I didn't answer it directly, but I, I think that there is a point, but I'm not going to give you that point. And I would say most of us are too quick uh, as Christ followers to call everything Satan and the mark of the beast, and we don't uh, give room for God to be working in situations when it comes to our government. That's my feeling. Um, so Wendy McCormick asked, how do we as Christ followers point people to Christ when church, uh, church goers, church goers are pushing people away yeah. by exclusion or superiority? Yeah, I couldn't read my handwriting. <laughs> okay, um, and that's a great question as well. I think that there are always going to be, especially now that one of the dynamics we face now that they didn't face then is Christianity now is widespread and it is the dominant thinking and our values, Christian values and, and, and Judeo-Christian values, they permeate our culture whether you want to admit it or not, they do. And so we all have this, we all have this undergirding of uh, Christianity, uh, somewhat of an understanding. And so there are always going to be um, in our society people who are acting out in the kingdom, focused on, king, uh, on kingdom of, of the kingdom of men, that are living for ki the kingdom of men, but yet are using and cloaking themselves in the kingdom of God. Um, you know my, my view that I preach many times is we proclaim tr uh, truth outside and inside uh, the church, but when we proclaim truth outside, we point people to Jesus. When we look at sinners outside the church, we point them to Jesus inside the church, we let Jesus and we let godly people correct sins, which we all have. So um, I would say don't get discouraged. Point people to Jesus. If you live out the kingdom of Jesus, that's what you're called to do. You're not called to uh, shout down every other Christian. Live out the kingdom of Jesus. Serve those who are being uh, excluded from God. Serve those who are being alienated. Uh, love your enemies and love those who you disagree with. And, and, and I think that's where we go from here. If enough of us will do that, that will change the world, whether it's the, the racial strife we're, we're facing, whether it's uh, the sexuality, all the different uh, views people have of sexuality. If we will simply love those outside the church that we disagree with and bring them into the church and point them to Jesus, Jesus will change their heart. Okay, I think we can just do one more. So Jill Canuzzi says, how do we handle situations such as government asking us to remove God from schools and public places? Um, and I think that's, that's a great question, too. And that's a fear, I think, that right now is, a, is highlighted um, a little more than it needs to be. And I say that simply because you can't take God out of these places. You can't stop somebody. So there are um, certain cities, our city is one, in which uh, before government meetings here, uh, they'll have a prayer. And, uh, and it's not going to surprise me if someday they stop that. Someday, very soon, they stop that. Schools used to say a prayer. Now they have a time of, of silence. But in that time of silence, every Christ follower can pray. And why would we expect a non-Christ non follower to pray during that time? In other words, you can, because we have the freedom of religion, because we have the freedom to still pray, um, I, I don't think we should get as, um, as upset about it because really all that's telling is that those who don't believe you're going to be forced to pray 
to something you don't believe in. And I don't think that's the way we convert people. The way we tell is we proclaim Jesus and we let Jesus convert their hearts. And so to me, uh, I, I'm, it doesn't upset me when we don't pray before a football game. Uh, it would upset me if they tell you you couldn't pray, but they've never said that. They've never said you can't kneel and pray, that you, you can't uh, seek God. God can't be, God's kingdom is above this kingdom, and there's yeah, nothing amen. this kingdom can do to, to keep him out of it. Right. Yeah, and those are all great questions, and there, there may have been more, and if you have more questions, you can, you know, we'll see them, and Joel can um, answer those, or we can answer those, or you can send him an email if you have even more questions, so um, we, will, we will get back with you with answers for those.